Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here is The Activist Files podcast. Hello and welcome to The Activist Files. I'm Nadia Benyusef. I'm the Advocacy Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Today's podcast is an event that we first broadcast on Indigenous Peoples Day during the People versus Fossil Fuels Week of Action. And you'll hear more about this in the podcast. It was an amazing week of direct action led by Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island. The event was called Water is Our Critical Infrastructure. And we're re-releasing it now in November in advance of the National Day of Mourning and in recognition of the centuries of indigenous resistance to the white settler colonial project of the United States. Today is over 400 years since the founding of Plymouth Colony, and this year is the 52nd National Day of Mourning, organized by the United American Indians of New England. It's a powerful annual gathering that mourns the genocide of millions of Native people, the theft of Native land, and honors the ongoing struggle for Native liberation and land back across Turtle Island. A parallel event on Thanksgiving happens at sunrise on Alcatraz Island, a site of extraordinary indigenous protest where a group of mostly native college students occupied the island in 1969. We're gonna link other resources on destroying the pilgrim mythology and celebrating the legacy of indigenous resistance, as well as resources that come up during the conversation that we had with our partners. Water is our critical infrastructure. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome. On behalf of the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Indigenous Environmental Network, and the Red Nation, I am so grateful to you for joining us for Water is Our Critical Infrastructure. Lawfare by oil and gas won't stop us from winning. My name is Nadia Ben Youssef. I use she and her pronouns, and I am joining you from the ancestral and unceded land of the Anacostan people. This event is coming to you on day two of People versus Fossil Fuels, a week of action in Washington, D.C., when hundreds of indigenous water protectors and land defenders and their allies have convened to call on President Biden, our self-declared climate president, to pick a side. Our conversation today is about the side of the people, the side of the planet, the side of all present and future generations. It is about the living history of the settler colonization of Turtle Island, advanced today by the oil and gas industry. It is about how that destructive, extractive industry has attempted to silence resistance and prohibit protest. It is about how the tired tactics of colonizers and corporations aren't working. It is about following indigenous leadership and it is about winning the world we deserve. 
Today, you'll hear, for, you'll hear from indigenous activists, scholars, and freedom fighters, as well as the fierce CCR legal team. I will invite them each to introduce themselves, their pronouns, and to acknowledge the land where they are. And throughout the event, we'll be inviting all of you into a land back acknowledgement by posting more information about how you can get involved in the struggle for indigenous sovereignty and collective liberation by learning and unlearning, making material commitments to support decolonial struggle and reparations, we can begin to enter into right relationship with the holders and caretakers of the land of Pearl Island. This is a joint struggle. So let this Indigenous Peoples Month be a time to study, to donate, uh, and to get involved. I am going to turn first to Shumanetu um, to ground us in the present moment. And, and this latest iteration of the attempted settler colonial takeover of Turtle Island and Shumanitu, you know, I hope that you can introduce yourself and share, you know, what do we need to know about historic and current Indigenous resistance and leadership? I want to point folks to the new report by the Indigenous Environmental Network, which notes that Indigenous people of Turtle Island are challenging a quarter of all carbon emissions from the United States and Canada, two of the world's largest per capita emitters. So, to you, Shumanetu, what does this moment mean? And welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Hao uh, Matakiepe. Hello, my relatives. I am Shumanetu Bluebird from the Pine Ridge Reservation. I am Oglala Lakota, which uh, is one of the seven bands of the Teton. And then that's one of the seven signifiers of the Chete Shahuin. It's kind of long, but that's like the traditional greeting. And so to me, like the physical moment, it, it represents a long history. It's it's not just something that started occurring in 2016 with the no DAPL protests, but it, it actually, to me, you know, it represents a greater concept in our culture called Miniwachoni, which means water is life. And, you know, to me, I don't see anything dangerous with this belief. Uh, I don't see anything dangerous about protecting the lifeblood of our mother earth, uh, which feeds us, allows us to breathe, you know, I don't think that's a dangerous belief and wanting to preserve a healthy way of life shouldn't necessitate the show of force that's been accompanying uh, the fossil fuel interests, uh, anti-life policies, you know, essentially what they want is to cause death. And, you know, it's, it's the money that they are making in their lifetime that drives them to do so. And, you know, to me, indigenous people like my grandparents and, you know, be, before that have all stood in resistance uh, to settler colonial interests. This isn't a new era, you know, it, it's just a continued policy that is standard when dealing with the outlaw indigenous people. You know, Geronimo is a, you know, very good example where many taxpayer dollars were spent to surround the area he was in with forts. And, you know, it took forever to actually capture him. We can look with the current forever wars. It's the same examples. And all of these are for the extraction of resources. But I've come here on the behalf of the Ren Nation. Uh, and more importantly, for Oglala Lakota Oyate. You know, I, I use they, them pronouns. The point I was trying to make was that. I think we might have lost Shumanitu, but grateful for that grounding. You know, I was listening to them talk about, you know, defense of water, the defense of life is not dangerous. And I think part of what we're going to talk about is how that defense and protest itself 
for the future of this planet and of all generations to come and the present generations is being criminalized and how the oil and gas industry is doing that because they know that standing up uh, a movement with a vision is what will win. And this movement, this indigenous led movement has vision of a transformed world and is growing and building power. And so of course, the oil and gas industry is trying to silence that, to stop that momentum. And so maybe as we wait for Shumanity to come back, I would love to turn to you, Anne, and zoom into the work that you've done for years, pushing back against the Louisiana oil and gas industry to introduce yourself and, and to share what we need to know about the struggle against the Bayou Bridge pipeline, and especially how you defeated felony charges emerging from the critical infrastructure law in Louisiana. So thank you, Anne, so much for being here. Thank you. Midakuyapi, chante washte nape chuzapi, ohitika wi mie na an white hat machapikshto. This is my traditional greeting. I'm Sichangu Lakota, a relative, a tribal relative neighbor of our of our friend who we lost here on our on our airwaves, Shungmanitu. There he is, he's back. So um, I'm from Rosebud, South Dakota uh, originally, and I've lived down here in South Louisiana for the last 11 years. I've raised my children down here. And yes, yeah, so it's been a long, a very long run here for us, talking about the work that we've done down here uh, against the Bayou Bridge Pipeline and the movement that we helped to not only build here in the South, but also it was part of a large, much larger movement to protect the water. And really it was a targeted effort against the energy transfer partners because of the destructive work that they've done, of course, that we all know up at the Dakota Ac Access Pipeline project. And this is the tail, tail end of that Dakota Access Pipeline is the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. So the same uh, trail of destruction here as has happened up north. And so yes, we targeted them and as we were, as you have already noted, this tactic of targeting water protectors at this point is nothing new. This is something that has been with us since colonization, really, since they've started using the forces of military and the uh, policy structures that came with imperialism to really subdue any movements that indigenous people have have led to protect our water, protect our ways of life. And so we've managed to adapt to that as time goes on. And so now we're in this age where our tactics and our fight is still the same, but it's on another level. It's on a completely another level. And so I think that something that goes along with that is just the history of colonization as it relates to indigenous people right now. We're, while we're still the same, we're the relatives of, of our ancestors that have fought this We've also come from a, with the boarding school eras that we're coming out of, we're also products of that anti-boarding school project era, uh, where we didn't go through and a lot of those same oppressions didn't hold us back from, from what we're able to do now. And so I'm, I hope that makes some sense to you all. And so, in, and how that relates to the work that we did down here in the, uh, in the South. Oh my gosh. There's so much to talk about. I wonder even just what it means for you personally. So kind of what, what ha you know, this sort of long legacy of resistance. And you said, you know, this is another level. Can you talk to us about the other level that you endured and, and ultimately 
Yeah, so ultimately right now what we faced and what we what I personally have endured and I'm sure I can't speak for others in my situation, but I'm sure it's been similar with this recent fight against the um, state of Louisiana and the critical infrastructure laws and much and like much of these laws, what they've done and what they're set out to do is to really silence us, really, because we are a viable threat. Okay, so this is one of the tactics that they use is to do whatever they can to silence us. And this was a, an effort to threaten, uh, threaten us by, you know, threats of, of imprisonment for up to 10 years. Okay, and so living with that threat was over our heads is very stressful. It's a very stressful thing that they, that they did impose on us, but I don't know. We were able to pull this off and get out of this because of what they because what they did was unconstitutional. And we knew that we were right from the very beginning. We knew we were right, not only in just our vision and what's come from our heart and what we needed to do, but we also knew that we read the laws and we know that there are what they call like gray areas or whatever, you know, like loopholes that allowed us to continue to do our do what we needed to do. And so that's what we did. We stayed within lawful means and we stopped them. And that's what pissed them off <laughs> to come at us so rightfully, or not, not rightfully, but to come at our righteous fight. So, um, and to be so threatened by us. And so I'm really proud of the work that we did. And if it wasn't for the Center for Constitutional Rights and our really a great team of attorneys, I don't know that we would be sitting here today. And so it takes it's not just the frontline folks that are in this fight, but it takes a whole team of, of organizing of like everybody to come together to really, to really defeat these, um, these forces that are against us. Thank you so much. Uh, and you know, what I love, the resistance continued despite the oppression of the state that has a monopoly on violence, but not on righteousness and not on justice. And so, I love hearing that kind of finding ways to continue the work and the struggle. Shumanitu, we lost you for a second, but I wonder if you want to just come back in before we turn to you, Pam, just to learn a little bit more about that legal battle. But Shumanitu, reflections that you wanted to share or response to Anne? Well, I mean, like just continuing off of what Anne said, it's like, you know, there, there's way more struggle. Like I, I barely know about the Rosebud resistance, uh, like movements, because when, when you're looking at what's going on, there's someone like I'm personally right now in Anishinaabe lands, which uh, you have the line five struggle in Michigan, which is another ambitious bridge project, I believe, of a pipeline that goes underneath the Mackinac Straits. So theoretically, if they don't like actually protect the straits good enough, it's going to spill because pipelines always spill and it is going to pollute the greatest source of fresh water left in the world. And then on top of that, like I know people who were working on the pipeline who told me they were scraping steel from the pipe just with a screwdriver. That's terrifying that 10% of the world, like, I don't know, 10%, 15% of surface fresh water is the Great Lakes or maybe just Lake Superior. And that's at risk because the it's flimsy steel that's protecting it. Manitou, thank you for grounding us back into that. And just the decision, the political decision that is being made in this moment to choose industry over people, over water, over life, and bringing up certainly, thank you for raising the, the fight with on Anishinaabe land 
to the line three resistance. And we have some comrades in the chat who are um, actually part of the week of action, are delivering a million petitions to Biden to stop line three happening today at the Army Corps of Engineers. So follow that, support that. Um, we'll also drop some bail funds in the chat because as we've been talking about, you know, this is a threat to industry. It's a threat to empire. And so the state is cracking down. There are over 800 arrests of water protectors defending and resisting line three, which is more than even the Dakota Access Pipeline struggle. The state is getting scared and reacting in this way. Um, so. Pam, I, I want to turn to you just kind of zooming back into the Louisiana struggle and, and how we won, how we fought back. You, together with Bill Quigley, represented Anne and many of the other water protectors who were facing felony charges against this critical infrastructure amendment. And so maybe if you could talk to us about that law, what was it? <laughs> Particularly, how dare they talk about critical infrastructure with regard to oil and gas? how it came about, and then just kind of guide us through briefly the development of this case and what it means legally, kind of building on what Anne was saying about these are unconstitutional and we have, we are committed to the righteous resistance. Sure, thanks Nadia, uh, and it's an honor to be with you all today. My name is Pam Spees and my pronouns are she, her, and I'm um, calling in from the ancestral lands of the Homa Chittimacha. Uh, not too far from Anne Whitehat today. And uh, it's been an honor to represent Anne and others who've been targeted under this, this unconstitutional law, which we call the anti-protest amendments to Louisiana's critical infrastructure law. And it was actually part of the oil and gas industry's nationwide effort to crack down and silence protesters uh, where, where these fights were happening and in, and in states where they have easy puppets in the legislatures to quickly enact these laws. So Louisiana's law was basically similar to the model version that was pushed through the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC through, through a number of states. It was uh, similar to that model legislation. But what Louisiana's did was add pipelines to the definition of critical infrastructure. So it made, if in fact someone were committing a trespass, and that's always a question, uh, which is normally treated as a misdemeanor, it felonized that action and penalized it with a sentence of imprisonment of up to five years. And was facing two charges and was looking at the possibility of 10 years. So that law went into effect on August 1st, 2018, and we saw the first arrests of people protesting the Bayou Bridge Pipeline just eight days later. So we know what it was intended to do, and we know what it was being used to do immediately after it went into effect. And altogether, there were 17 people charged under this law, one journalist among them. And what we ended up doing was challenging the constitutionality of the lawsuit. And uh, two others are currently fighting that constitutional challenge to the law, which also had a bearing on the criminal charges. When, the, when that case challenging the constitutionality of the law was allowed to proceed in May of this year, let, it, it basically signaled to the district attorney that he was gonna have to fight this case. And two months later is when he made the decision to reject the charges because it was, I think it was clear to him that he would have a fight on his hands and these charges would not have stuck anyway, especially in Anne's case, where you had the irony in all of this 
is that the Bayou Bridge Pipeline Energy Transfer Partners had actually made a decision to trespass on that land and begin constructing and destroying trees without the legal authority to do so, which it could have gotten pretty easily, but it made a, a determination that it would have been less expensive for it to go ahead and, and trespass on this, on this property and build the pipeline rather than wait and follow the normal course of, of proceedings. So that's the irony here is that the company and all of the arresting officers, which were working for a private security hired by it, they were all trespassing. And yet Anne and others were charged with trespass under this new law and were facing these felony charges. So that's, that's basically how it came about. We know that the Louisiana Mid-Continent Oil and Gas Association was behind it. They actually drafted it and handed it to the legislators, legislators to be enacted. And then as soon as it went into effect, you started seeing the arrests. And the good news is that all of those charges have since been rejected, but after three years with them hanging over everyone and affecting their lives and in very serious ways. And the, the challenge to the critical infrastructure law, the constitutional challenge is still proceeding. Thank you so much for that, Pam. And is there anything you want to add in terms of that piece of the work or, or what it fits into kind of the larger the legal challenge and then how it fits into the work that you're continuing to do, how it makes that work easier, just kind of. Yes, I think that a lot of this, a lot of the, the legal challenges are stemming from a sense of, of really um, new fights in places that have not seen real organized challenges to old ways of basically raping Mother Earth, okay? So we need to continue to do that. We need to continue to challenge those places and we need to continue to be on those front lines and we need to continue to not be afraid to do this work because the ultimately, if we don't, we know what's going to happen and um, we've heard this time and time again. And we also need to be ready to support our frontline people when they're our relatives when they're faced with these with these challenges and these lawsuits just to provide support because the way it affects there's a number of ways but things people don't think about is like your job applications you might try to get a place to rent gosh there's so many things that are affected not just and just your mental health you know a lot of stress you always are just thinking of like plan a plan b plan c every single day you wake up and especially if you have children you have to plan for everything you're doing not that it's impossible because we have done this for the last three years so we're able to like you know make it happen or do what we have to do it's really what it comes down to is we just do what we have to do in the moment there's no there's no playbook for any of this that says hey if this happens call so and so you know whatever right we just have to make it happen and and roll with the punches and be willing to do that but also just keeping keeping the goal in mind i've been listening to a, a lot of revolutionary folks lately and one of the things that stuck with me recently was in terms of you know working with i mean we're all trying to survive this pan, global pandemic at in this moment with this covid 19 covid virus and and i think ultimately another virus that we really need to be eradicating is is, is global imperialism and and colonialism right like that virus came here and, and that's something that we talked about yesterday on and this week with indigenous people's day and a lot of the events that are happening so i think this is one of our ways of sort of like i don't know if it's a vaccine or what it is you know but like a straight shot to them and telling them like we're not gonna 
and we're not putting up with this anymore. You can go ahead and try, but we have expertise and we have friends in the field and we have support to help us make it through these moments and we're going to, and we're not gonna stop, bottom line, thank you. Yes, to that bottom line. And uh, here's to eradicating imperialism, white supremacy and the pandemics that are ravaging our world and our lives. What an honor to be in this struggle with you. Shumanitu, I want, you are a member of the Red Nation. And I know particularly as Anne was talking, you know, about this vision, the goal in mind. I wonder if you can just share with us a bit about the Red Nation's response in the form of the Red Deal, kind of walking us through your analysis and your demands. We, we have a chance, you know, kind of responding to your own work on the front lines. And um, I know your experience at Standing Rock and what that has meant for you in terms of this next generation of, of fighting back. So the vision and then you. Thank you very much. And, and that was so powerfully said. Well, Pila, thank you. But the Red Deal is, of course, the Red Nation's response to the climate struggle in general, but more specifically with Line 3 and stuff, you know, and the ultimate mission we, we strive for is to, you know, see indigenous-led climate change and offer a better solution than the, the milk toast option of the Green New Deal. AOC, who introduced the New Deal, was actually at Dakota Access Pipeline. That's where she uh, started her political career, well, like uh, her run for Congress or whatever. And she, where's the support now? You know, why isn't there Every day, somebody going in Congress, you know, saying that they support Line Three and uh, don't support Enbridge. You know, where is that happening? There is no presentation really going on. So we're left to the grassroots now. You know, the grassroots people are the ones who are going to actually strive to protect, you know, the water that they use. You know, that's the main reason is that it's, you know, in our personal benefit to protect this water. You know, personally, I live very close to Lake Superior. It is a gorgeously clean lake, you know, and imagining it polluted. I, I mean, I can't I can't imagine what I, what I've heard from line three. You know, I was going to go and uh, I was beat up by cops the night before I left because of a panic attack I was having. You know, now now my partner got arrested for obstructing justice. I don't know what justice was being served. You know, I didn't commit a crime. I was panicking because I have mental health issues again, because, you know, back when I was 16, I decided to go to DAPL and saw people shot with rubber bullets, attacked my dogs and sprayed in the middle of winter with hoses. Now in Dakota Access Pipeline, well, not Dakota Access Pipeline, but line three, you know, the newest, assault, like newest version of the struggle, you know, you have fish suffocating in front of people's eyes. You, when a fish suffocates in the river, there's a problem on earth. You know, there's that we shouldn't allow companies to destroy the habitats of animals, let alone pump all the water and leave a mud puddle for a river. How do they turn rivers into ponds or even worse puddles? So our, our, uh, our, you know, our demands, you know, our reinstatement of treaty rights, you know, full rights and equal protection for native people, uh, the end of disciplinary violence against native peoples and all oppressed peoples, the end of discrimination against the native silent majority, youth and the poor, uh, the end to the discrimination, persecution, killing, torture and rape of native women, 
the end of discrim to the discrimination, persecution, killing, torture, and rape of native, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and two-spirit people like myself. You, the end of the dehumanization of native peoples, uh, access to appropriate education, healthcare, social services, employment, and housing. That's a big one. You know, supposedly we have access to that. But if you go to Pine Ridge, you're driving an hour, you know, you, you could be driving anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour to the closest hospital just because you might live in the middle of nowhere, whereas somebody else might live in the housing project. The reparations of native lands and lives and the protection of non-human relatives. The end of capitalism colonialism is the biggest part because that, that basically would address most of those uh, uh, or all of them. I mean, in every single way you could connect the end of capitalism colonialism to the previous nine you know, issues. But that's the only way we can actually see a change in my opinion. You know, that's why I joined the Red Nation is because I, I believe strongly in the Red Deal. I believe strongly in the politics espoused by wonderful comrades that I've had the amazing opportunity to meet with, meet these relatives from the Southwest, California, all over the nation where I, I, I've been able to just learn so much, been able to connect with so many other people and realize how similar the struggle is, you know, and how similar the historical struggle has been. The fact is, is that every tribe across this nation in some way, shape or form has probably had some water protecting uh, incident in their history. And it goes back a very long time. You can go back to the fishing rights struggles of the 1950s. You can go to the uh, anti-nuclear movements of the 70s and 80s. You know, these are perfect examples of trying to protect water. And because they've been ignored and haven't received as much attention as we've been getting in this new era, we've seen now that in Pine Ridge, you'll get stomach cancer if you drink the well water for 10 years. That's insane. Manihu, thank you. And holding you close as you resist and as you heal. Um, and, you know, I'm listening to the multitude of systems and, and structures of colonialism, of white supremacy that you are resisting with your being, with your with your brilliance, with your commitment to this work. So holding you close as you continue your resistance. And we have just a couple more minutes. Um, I wanna ask Pam and then I'll close with you, Anne, but if there's something that we should be watching in terms of this kind of lawfare practice, um, if you have a call in to movement lawyers that you wanna, you wanna share now, and if there's anything that you wanna leave us with as we move into the next stage of the struggle. Sure. Well, I think, you know, it's important to to underscore that the law in Louisiana is one of many that has been pushed around the country and, and not just and yes, definitely around pipeline protests because they've been so effective, but also in, the, you know, we've seen just anti-protest laws in general, this, the, the attempt to silence protest of any kind, well, uh, uh, of the left and of indigenous and and uh, black struggles for freedom. And so what, but what is hopeful is that the fight against these things, you know, in Louisiana, we, we had the legal victory, the case is allowed to proceed, the charges have been dropped. And, and yes, we're fighting the system within the system and trying to, you know, it's basically damage control. And, but in Florida, there's been some success too. So when Florida passed, it's what it called the Combating Public Disorder Act. Um, which was proposed by DeSantis in the wake of, of all of all of the 
outrage and uprisings in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. Um, it was passed very quickly through the Florida legislature, and it, it, it attempts to change the definition of riot and, and basically give legal cover to vigilantes who would do violence to protesters in those contexts. That case has been challenged by the Dream Defenders, the Black Collective, and others, and they've recently had a victory in Florida where, where a federal judge enjoined part of that law and the case is being allowed to proceed as well. So these things are being fought. And I, and I would say that, you know, as, as, Anne, was, as Anne was saying, um, the need for support is there and for lawyers to uh, step up and, and, and walk, with, walk with people who are taking the risks and uh, for all of us. And there's, when, when these laws get challenged, they are built on a house of cards. It doesn't always mean you'll, you'll ultimately be successful, but uh, if you don't fight it, you won't know. And our friends, our friends need it. So uh, that would be the call in. Thank you so much, Pam. And to you, Anne, you know, you gave us this phrase, water is our critical infrastructure. And we quote it at CCR and we think of you um, kind of changing and reclaiming the definition. Um, you said, you know, we need to continue to be on the front line. We need to fight back to survive first and then to thrive. Ultimately, I wonder if there's anything that you want to share about how you see things heading over the next few years, where you might want us as a community and um, in collective joint struggle to show up, turn up or how to do that. Anything that you want to share as we close? Thank you. Yes. I think one of the things I really would like uh, folks to take away from this is that the struggles are, um, this is just one microcosm of what is happening all over Turtle Island, what we call Turtle Island. And so these struggles are happening literally in your backyard. So please look in your backyard and look into your community and support what you can, because it is really difficult for us right now to travel due to the COVID, to the global pandemic. And so we can't, I would love to jump on in my car and drive up to my friends at Wet'suwet'en right now who are throwing down and they need so much support. And I feel where they're at because they're getting ready to draw underneath their watershed. And we were in that moment down here. And I was on that first action when we, lockdown and one of the first direct actions against the oil and gas industry down here. So I know that feeling and I know that call. And so what I'm saying is like, look in your backyard and do what you can to support what is there because there are enough of us everywhere that we have a stronghold in every single community and every single fight. We need to pull ourselves together and we really need to do that and we can do it. That's what I have to say. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Goodness, Anne. Yes, we are the multitude. Look in your backyard, hold your neighbor close. We are relatives. We are in the struggle together and we depend on each other. And so this is the moment. If you are in DC, your backyard is full. <laughs> uh, indigenous water protectors and land defenders are turning up for day two of a week-long action, People versus Fossil Fuels, to check it out. I wanna thank the Indigenous Environmental Network and the Red Nation, our co-sponsors, Obi Nwabazor and Dominic Renfrey from the Center for Constitutional Rights. Thank you to Kat, our stage manager, Maria and Jenny, our interpreters, and Cody and Dana, our transcribers. Looking forward to seeing those of you who are in DC this week on the streets, and of course, continuing to build with all of you. Happy Indigenous Peoples Month, land back, land back, 
land back. Have a great afternoon and until next time, thank you all so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. That's all until next time on The Activist Files. Thank you.